everyone. Welcome to another episode of Space Flicks. This is the podcast where we review a movie and decide if it's worth the cost of beaming out to a lonely astronaut in space. Who's going to go get that spice? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so today we're, we're reviewing Dune, the latest film. Dune Part 1, I should say. The latest yeah. film from filmmaker Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> Do you think the, I got that about you right? You pulled out your your best sl- eh. French there. <laughs> Vill- Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> you could just say Villeneuve, I suppose, to Americanize it. It's like Villeneuve, something like that. Yeah. Um, just like mushy vowels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Starring many people. Um, well, starring yeah. uh, Timothy Chalamet. Timothy and, Chalamet. And Rebecca Ferguson. I think Rebecca Ferguson. I'm not <laughs> yeah, going to do that for every. Yeah, you can worry. stop doing that. Um, there, uh, I'd, I think those are the two biggest characters. But then there's also Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Jason Momoa. Uh, who else? A lot of Javier big, Bardem. Javier, Javier Bardem. Mm-hmm. Dave Batista, Stellan Skarsgård. Zendaya. Zendaya. Yeah. Uh, so lots and lots of of big. Uh, Heavy hitters when it comes to the cast here. Um, and I don't know who wrote this. Well, based on the novel by Frank Herbert, based on the classic sci-fi novel, mm-hmm. a, a novel which has inspired many beloved stories and sci-fi worlds since, most notably, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably other things, too. <laughs> just just the other day, I was like, I should look into when was... a. Uh, when was the Song of Ice and Fire series written? I believe after Dune. So that's right. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, let's talk. Uh. Well, let's get to first impressions and so forth. But first, do you want to read the synopsis, Adam? Yes, I do. Uh, feature adaptation of Frank Herbert's science fiction novel about the son of a noble family entrusted with the protection of the most valuable asset and most vital element in the galaxy. Oh, they don't even name it. (laughs) It's the spice. The spice melange. Melange? Melange? Something like that. Something like that. Um... Okay, and just to round out the creative team here, the writers were Denis Villeneuve, Eric Roth, and John Spates. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Okay. Um, what were your expectations going into this movie, Adam? What What do you think of Denis Villeneuve? What's, have you read the book Dune? Uh, what, what did you think of the cast? What was your sort of excitement level and what were you expecting? Oh, excitement level was high. Um, not, I have not read the book. Uh, I own a copy of it and it sits by my bed and I have read, you know, four pages. Um, so yeah, four more pages than the average person. I'm very, so I'm very well versed in the world of Dune. Let me tell you. Um, but no, I was very excited for it. Um, I think probably the, there were two things that sort of, um, made I think convinced me that this would be very good uh and made me really excited for it the first is that uh it was directed by Villeneuve and I've quite liked uh every movie I've seen by him um uh aside from I'm I'm fairly confident he can do 
you know, like Hollywood entertainments, you know, in the form of like Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, which I liked. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not as much as you, but I, I still liked it. Uh, I feel like he can do all of his films that I've seen have like a real um, element of weirdness, like t- like sort of uh, very, very odd. They're very odd films. You know what I mean? Like Enemy is a weird movie, right? Um, Enemy is a weird movie, yes. Sicario, uh, despite, I, has, um, in some ways you might just compare Sicario to like Sicario 2, right? And Sicario 2 is a much more straightforward, like, action thriller type mm-hmm. movie. Um, Sicario is a very strange movie, right? That's like the point of view of Emily Blunt for the first two thirds and then like becomes Benicio del Toro's movie in the last third. It's just, it's just like a very strange. And so at any rate, like he does things in his movies that are typically kind of exhilarating and unexpected, right? You just don't, you can't just pretend that you you can't um, get comfortable, I guess, and assume like, Oh, this is going to be paint by numbers and it's just going to be some big movie. And, uh, it'll do what big movies do. It's like, it may not, probably won't. Um, So that was like, so Villeneuve immediately earned, earns a lot of trust with me. And then, um, you know, I don't know anything about Dune from, you know, as far as prior knowledge, other than basically the synopsis of the film. It's like, okay, it's like a family fighting for the spice with another Mm -hmm. family, Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, but it looked great. Like the trailer looked great. Um, and so I was like, uh, yeah, like fighting on a desert planet uh, over the most important resource in the universe. Sure, let's do it. Wor- giant worms, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so those two things, just like the, like they could have said that this was just like any story it doesn't you know what i mean if it was just like villeneuve directing a epic on a desert planet right i would have been in it could it could have been anything it didn't have to be dune particularly yeah i was i was uh, i was really looking forward to this too I, I i really love villeneuve i think he's um i i, I still don't feel totally confident he's like my favorite working director but right he might be um, right. <laughs> uh, he, he's definitely in the, if he's not, he's in the, a very small set of directors who, you know, would be candidates for my favorite and a big putter that is just his batting average is basically a thousand, you know, from what I've seen, I haven't seen right. a movie he's made that I didn't think was really strong, um, and yeah. really special in its own way. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. It's a little bit weird. I mean, I wouldn't have used the word weird to describe him, but there's certainly, I think one thing he, he doesn't seem to do despite being given these big budget movies is, um, you know, Blade Runner and now Dune are probably his most commercial films, but Arrival was fairly commercial as well. Mm -hmm. And I just think he, he is, is sort of like close to, he's able to make a movie that feels like sort of superficially similar to big Hollywood movies. Right. But just really do have something unique and different about them. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And I, I think this movie is no exception, but we'll get into that. Um, I think I'm, I'm in a, probably a pretty small percentage of the population now in that I read the book, um, after this movie was announced and cast and the trailer was out and everything. So I think I had this very, uh, uh, very unusual experience reading the book where I'm reading about these characters, this story that I've never read before and I didn't really know it. Yeah. But I'm like picturing Timothy Chalamet, (laughs) you know, and Rebecca Ferguson and Oscar Isaac in these roles, which was kind of odd. I was, I, um, I certainly, part of me wishes I'd read it, uh, you know, before, before, but, um, uh, but I think reading the book honestly made me even more excited for the movie because reading it, I like you, you know, what I knew of this story before the film was I'm aware that there's like the Atreides and the Harkonnen and they're, you know, fighting for control of the spice. Right. Um, and I'm embarrassed to admit, I've even seen the 1984 David Lynch version of Dune. Have right. you seen that one? No, never should, seen should it. should cover that. I've seen that. And mm-hmm. I I don't think I remembered what the story was like at all. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I might as well have not seen it, I think, when it comes to like memory of the plot. I think there's right. like certain visuals I kind of remembered, but that's it. Yeah. Um, now I feel somewhat, I feel somewhat, uh, uh, guarded there because I've heard other people who have also seen that movie say they also had no idea what the plot was. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, so I think that movie is just a little bit inscrutable, but, um, uh, it made me more, more excited for this story because reading the book, I, like about, you know, a third of the way into the book, I, I was like, Oh, this is way more like game of Thrones in space than I expected it to be. Uh-huh. Um, in, yeah. in a good way, like, there's just a lot of machinations and, you know, there's a lot of different characters, each, each kind of pursuing their own agenda. And I thought that was really cool. Um, I don't know what I was expecting. I think I was just expecting something a little bit simpler. Right. Um, but it's quite a complex story. And, um, and so I, I, you know, I found myself getting invested in it. I'm actually like halfway through the, I'm halfway through Dune Messiah right now. So I've already right. started reading the sequel. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that's, uh, yeah, it gets you kind of invested. The world is very rich. Um, so, uh, so having read the book, being such a huge fan of Villeneuve, I was really, really looking forward to this movie. Um, and to just jump right ahead to first impressions, uh, I really liked it. What did you think? Yeah, yeah, really liked it a lot. Um, watched it with my wife who is, you know, I think just generally, uh, less excited about movies, right? Like sort of a more average movie goer, sort of like, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then as soon as it ended, she's like, that was really good. When is the, when is the sequel coming out? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and uh, she was like, is it coming out like next year? And I was like, it's probably at least I don't even think that at the time they had not even like greenlit the announced sequel. the sequel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I was like, it may never come out. But if it does, <laughs> it's probably at least a couple years away. I would. Think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she was like, that's unacceptable. <laughs> and so I know, uh, I know. And but yeah, really just had a just had a really good time at the movies. It it um 
it's such it was well you know as we know they have greenlit the sequel at this point and they've yeah, even given yeah. it a release date yes i believe of october 2023 yeah um we'll see you know release dates slip things happen things get moved back right. i'm 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 really nervous about it to be quite frank i mean like this cast is so big yeah um that i'm like do you have did you know if you didn't have the movie all set and contracts signed and stuff like are all these people going to be available in that time frame or surely like these are a lot of these are working actors who are really in demand so does it you know a part of me wonders and i who knows but i it would not surprise me if later it comes out that like they were always going to make a part two, but they purposely were like, we're not going to say that we're going to make a part two because if people feel like there's a risk that they, mm-hmm. that we might not do it, they will be incentivized to come to the theater and see it. Right. As opposed to like, well, I'll just see both of them when the second one comes out. You know um, what I mean? Yeah, may- maybe, but my honest impression uh, now since we're in speculation mode <laughs> um yeah. it seems to me like there are sort of different factions within Warner Brothers oh maybe and yeah. and like i think there are those who who mainly wanted to just see the HBO Max streaming performance and there yeah. were those who were really concerned with the box office and what we ended up with was sort of like a compromise between them you know yeah of, yeah <clears throat> But, um, uh, but yeah, anyway, anyway, I, I'm very happy that the sequel has been announced and I hope it comes out October, 2023, but you know what, if it's, if it's, uh, summer of 2024 or something, I'm just happy that it's, that it's coming and we're going right. to get it. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought it was great. I also saw it with my wife who mm-hmm. is like yours, not generally as much of a movie person or a sci-fi person, certainly. Right. Um, but, but she loved it, and and uh, not to get ahead of, the, uh, of ourselves too much. But her her sort of big quote after the movie was like, "You didn't tell me about the witches." <laughs> She's like, "All you needed to do was tell me about these witches, and I would have been all in." Uh, so she really liked the witches, the, the Ben Jesseret, the Bene Jesseret, yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, I just thought it was I thought it was great. I thought, you know, I'd heard probably everything that we all heard was like the visuals are great. It's a real cinematic experience, you know, enjoy on the biggest screen possible, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, And so it was all those things. But I also I I really if I had any worry, it was that, oh, is it going to be like a little cold? Is it going to be a little you know, his movies, I, I do think, have a tendency to be somewhat cerebral. Yeah. And that can, something that can be sacrificed there is, you know, depth of character, that kind of thing. Right. I don't think that's as much a weakness of his as it is of, say, somebody like Nolan. Right. I think Nolan's characters can be really, like, feel unreal, like they're not real human beings. Right. I never, I never feel that way about Villeneuve. It's more like it might, the movie might not focus as much on the human side of things. Right. But, um, but I thought the characters in this were really good. I, I, I appreciated the way they were depicted. Um, I thought the performances were great. I thought the relationships were engaging. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so yeah, I, there was not really a, a lot of 
I, there's not a lot I would have to complain about other than just like a few nitpicky things, which we, we can get into at the end uh, of the conversation. But overall, yeah, I was just really, really, uh, sounds like similar to like all of us, <laughs> you, you, you and I and our spouses were all in the same boat of just like being really on board with this movie and looking forward to the next one to, to yeah. the conclusion of the story. So awesome. Um, how about the themes? How about the themes of Dune? You want to take a, a stab at what, what did you think? What did you get from this movie thematically? Uh, yeah, it's funny. Like, I feel like knowing that this is such a popular story uh, and that, you know, like there are probably more, there's more deep thinking about this movie and this story <clears throat> than like the average movie that you and I watch. Right. Right. Like the amount of scholarship on Dune without me having read any of it, I am mm-hmm. certain that there are mountains of it compared to a movie like Pig, where it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like there's not, a, you know, there's probably a lot of people seen that movie, but like not nearly as many as. Dune. So well, I, there's there's a there's surely a ton of scholarship, but also there's just so much of a lineage. Right. Right. So, so many other works of art that kind of in many ways are children or, or descendants of Dune creatively. Yeah, right. right. That have, yeah, that have, have cribbed something from Dune. So, um, uh, I say all that to like, I feel really dumb, you know, trying to like articulate the themes of Dune when mm. they, I'm sure there are millions of people who have thought about this way more than I have. Uh, but that being said, as far as what the movie gives you and not bringing like any additional, you know, book smarts to it. Cause I have no book smarts. Um, uh, leadership seems mm-hmm. like an interesting notion in this movie. Like this idea of, um, Oscar Isaac at one point says, you know, uh, leadership isn't a choice. It's a calling. I think he said something mm. to that effect. Yeah. And that, you know, if you are called to lead, then you will. And if, for whatever reason that never happens, then maybe you won't, but you have to sort of like find your own way to it. And so that, that note, I feel like so much of the movie is about, uh, Paul's journey, right. To, to determine sort of what kind of person and what kind of leader he may be. Right. Um, and so, uh, and what that involves as far as like, um what part of yourself you have to be willing to almost like give up in order to be a leader uh so i thought that that was something that i picked up on um what about you uh what you're you're coming at this with more con with more sort of familiarity than me what sort of themes did you pick up on um yeah i mean i have read the story that doesn't mean i'm uh you know, an expert on the themes because I read the story all of like a month ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's not had like years to marinate in my uh, subconscious. But I think that for for me, the the big word that comes to mind is destiny. I mm-hmm. think um, something that Paul Atreides, the main character of the story, something that Paul grapples with. And I think the story is asking you to consider is is well 
maybe maybe I can't succinctly capture it as a point, but it's sort of questioning the way that people generally think of destiny. Like, you know, um, I think most stories that deal with the concept of destiny, like take take a movie like Lion King, right? To me, that's like uh-huh. a sort of a, a a quintessential example of a modern story about destiny where you know right. the main character Simba has a destiny it's glorious he's supposed mm-hmm. to be the king mm-hmm. and he's um you know and he's resistant to it for a while and the, his character's arc is learning to basically accept what he was meant to be right right and that's like a good triumphant thing right i think dune is a much more multi-dimensional you know view of what destiny is mm-hmm. firstly it's sort of like, it's not just this, like the universe doesn't create a destiny for you. If, if you have a destiny, um, it could very well be the, 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 the result of the machinations of a group of people you might not even agree with, you know, in this case, mm-hmm. yeah. like the Bene Gesserit have been, um, you know, as, as, as is revealed in the story, they have been kind of working for generations to produce someone like Paul. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, it's not necessarily a good thing, right? I right. think he is, he's kind of, you know, like I said, grappling with that, wrestling with that in this film. And, you know, the movie starts with, uh, with a voiceover from Chani Zendaya's character mm-hmm. talking about how all we've ever known speaking for the Fremen, the, the native people of Arrakis, the planet mm-hmm. Arrakis. She's, she's saying how, you know, all we've ever known is cruelty. And she sort of wonders like, who will our next oppressors be? Or like, what mm-hmm. will, what will the, I forget the exact words, but essentially she has no expectation of any, you know, of any benevolent treatment. It's, it's just a, she takes it as a given whoever is going to replace the Harkonnens here is mm-hmm. also going to be someone who's terrible to us. And, right. um, you know, I think while the Atreides are certainly painted in a more positive light and Paul is, he, he's, you know, he's the protagonist. He's supposed to be kind of the good guy. Yeah. It's not, it's not to me obvious from this movie. And I don't think it is from the way the story goes either that he, you know, is like a savior or is like the, the right person, you know, in some sort of absolute sense, it's kind of all relative. Um, but what he is, but what he is destined for is power. So Uh it's like, he's going to be powerful. Um, that's, that's what's going to happen. (laughs) Is he going to be a force of good, you know, is right. a lot is a lot more unclear, and I and I, I don't think I'm giving too much away. I I think that's already sort of at least hinted at in the story of this movie. Right. That it's not it's not like a foregone thing. Like he's he's the greatest thing to ever happen, you know, to the Fremen. It's like it's like here he comes. We'll see. <laughs> we'll right. see. Is that gonna is he gonna be good for them? Bad for them? Good for the universe in general or or not? You know, time will tell. Um. So. Yeah, that that to me feels that was probably the strongest theme that came out for me anyway. Um, 
anything else? Anything, you know, like us, I guess underneath the story of the movie, was there any other uh, messages or kind of deeper meanings you wanted to discuss or should we just move right along? Uh, something, something environmentalism. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like this notion of, you know, the object of desire in this film is like the material wealth that can be ripped from the planet and taken off world and how the native people who I think are pretty, pretty well romanticized, right? By the movie, the movie seems to be very, um, the movie seems to quite appreciate the notion of a culture that is sort of like one with the planet and understands like how to harness the power of that planet uh, mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't involve like ruining it, right? Um, and so I don't think that that really comes to full fruition in the film, but there is something, but the, the sort of cultural clash between, you know, the the outsiders coming in and just sort of being hell-bent on mining or extracting and the native folks who are, very disapproving of this and are like, this is not, you know, we accept it as sort of like an inevitable reality because we can't fight our way out of this problem. But, um, we absolutely don't approve. We think this is like the more, like sort of like the morally or environment, certainly environmentally wrong thing to do. Um, and at one point I'm trying to remember like the doctor or what, what's the character's name? Uh, the the woman who's the Asian guy or the black woman the yeah the African American lady what's her name Liet Kynes yeah she um she asserts like this planet could be a paradise mm-hmm. but it's not because of greed right mm-hmm. um sort of to put like too fine a point on it uh and so I felt like that was a a theme sort of undulating underneath the film. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, from like trying to extract spice attracts a giant worm Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's going to come kill you. Right. Right. I feel like there's some pretty clear parallels to just the consequences, you know, that how mother nature will uh, respond when her resources are being extracted too greedily. Um, And also just the concept, it's a, it's a totally different economy on this planet. You know, water is the most sacred aside from spice. Water is the, uh, the truly scarce resource. So there's so much, um, you know, I think it's smart of them. I think it's a smart kind of story choice to use, to pick something that, we consider abundant and never really worry, worry too much about it running out. Um, right. But to imagine a planet where it's so precious and then to just, you know, it makes you sort of uh, aware of all of the things that are kind of frivolous. You know, if, if we, if water were sacred, like for example, planting a bunch of palm trees around Mm kind of like the main palace in the main city, 
mm-hmm. which consume a huge amount of water. And it's like these, you know, this is like a hundred human lives worth of water, right? Mm-hmm. Just to right. sustain these trees. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a good theme to call out as well. Um, the truth is, you know, like I said, it's a rich story. It's a rich world. I think there are probably, if, if we were to study Dune, like the original text, as well as this movie, I'm sure we'd find, uncover quite a, quite a list of additional themes that are touched on. But I suggest let's go to best parts of the movie. If you're ready. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So we're going to spoil Dune part one. Um, and get right into best parts. Uh, why don't you go first? What's your, what's, what's one of the best parts of the movie from your perspective? Um, I think the part where I felt the most dread, sort of like this inevitable dread was maybe one of my favorite parts, uh, where, um, they've arrived in, in Arrakis and, uh, Leo Atreides and uh, Lady Jessica. Am I saying her name? Yeah, Lady Jessica mm-hmm. are asleep, and uh, Oscar Isaac playing um, Duke Leto Atreides uh, gets up and sees that one of his guards has been uh, uh, has been killed, and then uh, a hunter seeker, which we saw. Um, attack Paul earlier in the film, a different one comes and burrows into uh, Duke Leto's back and ultimately gets him. And this mm-hmm. is sort of the beginning of what is basically the fall of mm-hmm. a, the Atreides of family Atreides. On, yeah. on Arrakis. Yeah. Um, and knowing like I you know, like I, I don't know. I, again, I I didn't know this story, but I just sort of knew, like, um, at various points in the film, I think uh, the Bene Gesserit with the Harkonnens are like, a, Leto Atreides is expendable, mm-hmm. right? Like he, mm-hmm. and it's sort of like in that moment, you're like, he will not be surviving the film, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and just knowing like how this is all going to fall apart for them. Uh, while being sort of a little bit gut wrenching was also like extremely exhilarating because typically Mm. um, sort of in the same way uh, that, you know, in Game of Thrones, right? How um, Ned Stark is sort of like, uh, you know, spoiler alert for a very old thing now at this point, like (laughs) uh, Ned Stark is, is, killed and that scene it seems sort of like unthinkable because he's kind of the main character right in the story prior to that point um and you realize at that point in that story it's like oh i guess anything can happen in this story right yep, yep. and so when that's happening in dune and you see like the little flash of a like a mirror or a flashlight or something in the distance before leto atreides is killed and then you realize that it's a betrayal uh, and then the whole th- the whole house of cards collapses. Um, it's just very exhilarating as a as sort of the story unfolds because you're like, oh, anything can happen in this right, story. Right. No one is sacred. Right. Um, and so uh, I think it, while that was like maybe a little bit 
unpleasant in in a way it was also like deeply pleasant mm. because it's sort of like um here's a movie that's going to it's it's uh i mean not that the movie really deserves a lot of credit for this obviously it's like part of it's like baked into the story that was written by frank herbert but just this story is one that is unafraid to really upend sort of what you typically expect from from this from this kind of setup yeah so, um so i found well that it's really good enjoying. to hear it's good to hear that um that that scene was really effective for you. I mean, it's, I, I certainly agree that it was a very effective scene. Um, but one of the things that stood out to me about the film, obviously, you know, the book is like, I feel like it's 800 pages long or something. It's very long. Right. And, right. and this movie, it's, you know, two and a half hours or so. So, um, and granted it's only one half of the book, but even a five hour movie is not going to cover everything in an 800 page book. So, right. Um, uh, I, something I was very aware of when that scene came was like, oh, they're already doing this part. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in the in the book, I feel like you get a lot more time of the Atreides on Arrakis sort yeah. of establishing themselves. Yeah. And one thing I just wondered is for someone who hasn't read the book, does this all feel very rushed? Um, oh, okay, yeah. You know, which... Maybe it maybe it felt a little rushed to you. I don't know, but uh, that that scene it's very important that that scene still work, right? Right. Um, like put it this way, it's quite uh, it's it's even though, like you said, there's foreshadowing for sure with you know you know the plotting that's happening. It's still a little bit shocking and and just and certainly you know like you said heart wrenching when it does happen. Right, because you're like, I just didn't want this to happen to Duke, <laughs> to Toledo. He's yeah. a he's a good he's a good guy, good leader. Um, yeah, I thought that was great. I uh, going back a little bit, you know what scene I thought was really tremendous was the uh, Gam Gam Jabbar scene. His put put your hand in this box. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. so simple. Yeah, um, so completely, you know dependent on Chalamet's performance. Yeah. But I think he did. I I was actually talking, I was thinking about it after the fact and I was like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to artificially, you know, claim this is more unique than it is maybe. But for me, it was just sort of thinking about it. I was like, it seems so unusual. Like I'm used to seeing actors, you know, uh, kind of like, channel some sort of sad emotions to get themselves to cry and get really emotional. Right. But sort of faking like experiencing physical pain feels like a different kind of skill. And I think he really sold it. Like he really looked like you could, you could feel like the, 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 uh, you know, escalating amount of just physical suffering he was going through in that scene. Right. Right. Um, which I thought was really good and kind of cutting back to like, obviously as the audience, you've like kind of no clue what's going on, but you can tell this is a big deal. You know, his mother kind of like knowing the sense of dread lady Jessica has sort of bringing him to the Reverend mother. Right. And then having that scene go on and having Jessica outside, like really desperately hoping he makes it through this trial. Right. 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 Um, I thought that scene was just really, really effective and kind of like edge of your seat 
which is really saying something because it's literally just a guy with his hand in a box. Right. And he has to communicate. Cause it's funny. Yeah. I almost was expecting um, something more like I know he has some visions, but mm-hmm. like for some I don't know what I, I don't know how I expected them to do this, but I expected them to somehow visualize the pain he was feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but they just communicated it on his face. His acting. Right. 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 Um, Part of me wonders if like there was like plan A and plan B. You know, it's sort of like right. as the director that shooting it, you're sort of like, we'll see what his performance looks like and we'll see if we need to kind of, you know, punch it up in cuts to various like shots of hands on fire and stuff. Right. Right. But right. I was like, no, actually, it's his face does all the storytelling we need right now. Yeah, it's it's more powerful that way because you yeah. are forced to imagine suffering. Right. right in a way that would be a little bit cheesy if they tried to show you like, you know, Paul pictures the skin melting off uh-huh. his hand, right? Like it wouldn't be, yeah. that yeah. wouldn't work as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I thought that was a great scene. Um, let's see what else. I mean, the worms. Yeah. The, worms the scene pretty- where they're trying to evacuate the spice mining rig. Right. And you know, there's a worm coming in. Mm-hmm. And it's like T minus two minutes or whatever it is like for the worm to get. It's just sort of like that's a perfect setup for a high tension scene. It's like, yeah, there's a giant beast coming. We have to get everybody out of here. Right. And that will be difficult. Right. Just yeah. like that basic sort of race against the clock um, was so effectively done. It was a great introduction for the worms, mm-hmm. you know, just to sort of demonstrate their power and sort of the speed with which they arrive. Yeah. And I loved, I loved too that, you know, the Atreides, all, all of the, the Atreides sort of characters, they know about the worms because they've sort of read about them or, you know, seen little educational videos about them. Yeah. But they don't really, they've never really seen them firsthand. And so I think they're, it's really effective to me to see their kind of reactions to the worms where they're like, Oh my God, you know, right. (laughs) Like that thing is huge. Um, because it sort of sells to you, like to see it for the first time, right. In person would really be quite an overwhelming experience. Yeah. Um, I'll say one more thing I really loved. Uh, I thought the, the, the concept of the voice in this movie, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. was really cool. Yeah. Um really well done. You know like uh when they first introduce Paul and Lady Jessica mm-hmm. in just that sort of breakfast table scene yeah where she's like go on use the voice, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of I think it's a really good economical, you know, explanation of okay, this is some sort of witch skill she's been teaching her son. He hasn't right. quite mastered it. But it apparently makes you able to get people to do stuff. Um, yeah. And, uh, I think that was an effective way of setting it up. And then of course, later the, um, well, then they show, then they show, uh, actually Reverend mother in the scene. I was just talking about the, the gom Jabbar scene, Reverend mother, uh, uses it like effortlessly on Paul. Right. right? And it's just like, come sit here, like kneel before me. And it's like, you know, just like that. He's, he's, he's been controlled. 
um, which was, I, th- I think, a super effective way of just showing how powerful it can be if wielded by, you know, a master. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then, to me, the the best scene involving the voice, of course, was on the, not the helicopter, the ornithopter. Yeah, um, the dragonfly thing. When Paul, yeah. Paul and his mother are being taken, and he has to, he has to use the voice on the one guy Mm-hmm. to take the gag out of his mom's mouth so that she, who is much better at it than he is, right. can use it to just, you know, solve the rest of the <laughs> of their problem, right? Yeah. I, I thought that was a really good it was it was it was like an exciting scene. Yeah. Um really well done. And uh, just like the sound design of the voice I thought was really cool. Yeah, um, absolutely. I I would say I think one of the things I I, I feel like the movie takes a hard left turn after um the fall of house of trades because it basically comes the paul and jessica show right 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 um but i kind of love you know that the movie strips them down to like as powerless as possible a state as it mm-hmm. can because that's that's the exciting part it's not really exciting for like a king and a prince and a queen to be behind heavily fortified walls and like just sort of like anxious, right? Mm-hmm. That's not, you know, great. That's not a great state to stay in, right? right. Um, uh, it's much more interesting to put them in a highly vulnerable situation and then see them navigate that. Um, so I really liked just them being vulnerable. And then I really liked uh, very tactically, like, the fact that a lot of the problems they had to solve at that point are like these physical problems, you know, it's like, okay, now we have to like survive in our little like water cycling tent and our little water cycling suits. And we have to like walk in a certain way so we don't get eaten by sandworms. And like, I just sort of like, like that the movie like radically shifts gears at that point to be like Mm -hmm. a, how do we survive in this desert for like a day or two or three? Yeah. Um, Because it just sort of forces you to treat the, as a viewer to stop treating the desert as like this, like out there kind of place that like is mysterious and far. And instead it's like, no, 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 this is our reality. We're living in this world now. Right. We are in Arrakis now. We're not in like this fortified position in a, sort of fake oasis in the middle, like, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, so I really liked that whole bit. Cause it, it, you know, to set up Dune, the world, I feel like it was, um, that f- introduced me to Dune, I think more fully than anything in the movie prior to that. Yeah. 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 It, it, I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of just where the story goes, right? Like so many of the Atreides are basically wiped out or taken, at least taken out of the story, mm-hmm. right? In in any meaningful way. So um, I think focusing on Paul and Jessica sort of makes things much more intimate and kind of smaller in scope for a little bit as you're yeah. just following them. Uh, and I thought it was done really well. Um, by the way, <laughs> this is really not... Uh, important to this movie but this is yet another example to me of something that's always been just odd to me not odd i mean you sort of understand why for it's 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 keeping things simple i suppose but like in sci-fi movies there's always like you know 
the desert planet or the uh-huh. yeah. this or that planet. Like this entire planet is the desert and the Fremen are like the people of this planet. And I'm yeah. like, but Earth has deserts and, you know, right. Arctic places and jungles. And it's like, and there's just so many different cultures and people on this planet that like, it's insane to me to imagine an entire planet of just like one culture, you know, Uh but in sci-fi that's always, it's like on this planet, the people are like this, you know, Mm -hmm. and on this planet they're like that. And like you go to a location and you shoot at that location and you're like, this is the planet Caledon. I'm like, does it look like this all over the planet? Right. Right. (laughs) You know? So I just think that's funny. Like Arrakis is apparently just complete sphere desert everywhere. Yeah. And worms just crawling all over the whole thing. And anywhere you find people, they're Fremen. That's, you know, it's these people everywhere you look. I feel like that's, um, it's sort of like why else do interplanetary stuff, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If planets were like, oh, they're all, you know, like uh, varied and there's no one characteristic that you can say about that planet because, of course, you know, the people there are, varied in the so are the climates and it's just sort of like so just like another earth then basically right, right. right. uh yeah so, i mean they're they sort of are the uh they're like towns in an inter in an intergalactic yeah. environment uh or interstellar you know environment it's like maybe and maybe that's exactly what would happen you know maybe if we colonized a whole bunch of different planets we'd be like okay let's just kind of like terraform these things make them pretty uniform so it's just like to keep things simple it's like if you want to live in a tropical world you go here you go to this planet it's tropical everywhere you go everywhere you uh-huh. look yeah, you know? yeah yeah if you want the mountains go here we just put we just covered it in mountains right <laughs> but it sort of defies like what we know about how like why earth has different climates mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. it has to do with like the sun ecologies and yeah, how yeah, the yeah. sun shines on the equator and not on the poles and blah, right. blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right. But it's like in, in Dune, it's this weird sort of like, what if somehow like sun was exposed equally to all sides of this planet, right. In a way yeah. that led to uniform desert. But it's like, it doesn't seem physically possible knowing how <laughs> I know planets work, but like, whatever, that's fine. That's why it's sci-fi. But let's be fair. I also don't know how like Earth works. <laughs> I mean, and the that, first thought I had is like, how would the entire covered planet be covered in sand? You know, it's like right. sand everywhere. But then I'm like, I also don't know why the Sahara is completely covered in sand. Where'd all that sand come from? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Does anybody answer. know? <laughs> It's impossible to know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was a huge uh, digression. Anyway, um, any other highlights? Any other like favorite things about the movie you want to discuss? Um, I just think uh, it had a great look. Um, And and I include some of the special effects and or like weaponry in there. Like we already talked about the hunter seeker. Mm, The shields. The shields Shields look great. I, I feel like they undersold a particular thing that I thought was super great, which was at one point when Duncan Idaho is fighting off uh, the emperor's like 
swordsmen. I don't remember what they're Sardaukars. Um, Mm -hmm. Like at one point they puncture the door that Paul and Jessica are hiding behind. And there's this like extremely fine, like goldish colored laser thingamajig Mm -hmm. that like cuts through rocks effortlessly. Mm -hmm. Right. And just sort of like at one point, you know, they're sort of hiding behind a wall and they see it carve out a piece of the wall. And you can tell that they're like appropriately scared of this thing because they're like, that is dangerous. Um, And just sort of like little details like that. That's only used for like a few seconds in the movie and is to me, frankly, like an extremely uh, powerful and scary weapon that Mm -hmm. like exists and it's just like part of the movie you know it's just like a little detail in the movie like the ornithopters the hunter seekers the shields um like all of these are you know the suits that they're wearing to recycle water um just all of these details are cool things they're just great and different and interesting to look at um and so i just feel like the movie was constantly delivering stuff like that to just make you just engage with what you were seeing. Like, Oh, that's different. I've never seen something like that before. Um, yeah. or that's an interesting twist on something I've seen before. So, um, that was just, I think a great way for the movie to just keep you engaged throughout. Yeah, totally. By the way, I don't know if they ever explained this in the movie. Um, but I believe the, you know, you, you, you probably notice like there are projectile weapons in this universe, but they pretty much are always fighting with swords. Yeah. The spaceships were able to shoot. Stuff. Yeah. They had missiles and stuff. Yeah. Um, but you might, you might be one, like when it comes to that laser, for example, I think if I hadn't read the book and I watched this movie, I'd probably be like, that seems very deadly. Mm-hmm. Why don't they just use that as a weapon? You right. know? to kill people. And apparently in this universe, like lasers interact with shields mm-hmm. in a really destructive. It's like, it's like setting off an atomic bomb almost. Oh, interesting. Well, I don't know about an atomic bomb, but like, a bomb. um, yeah. but it's like, it's considered very dangerous to use lasers, like laser mm-hmm. weapons in an environment where there are shields. Huh. So they just, so they just don't basically right. it's like suicide. So, um, I wonder, I don't think they explained that at any point in this movie, did they? Did you, did any character ever say anything like that? I don't recall hearing that at any point, but I do remember, like, I had, I don't know when I heard this, but I just sort of, like, in the ether heard, like, oh yeah, no guns in Dune. And I was just Mm. like, oh, that's cool. I I was sort of just like, oh, that's cool. That way, (laughs) because like, you know, you and I have watched a bunch of action movies recently and we sort of talked about it's like, that you know that can be boring yeah right yeah um and so it's like it's all knife fights i'm like great we love good night we love some knife fights here on yeah well well i find it i tell you what i find fascinating is the concept of you know the way the shields work in this in this world is right if you are swinging a sword really hard at somebody it'll be deflected by the shield the way you actually can injure someone is the slow knife, right? Mm -hmm. You sort of get the blade close to them quickly, and then you have to very slowly penetrate the shield, Mm -hmm. which um, to me, I don't know how much, you know, 
effort the choreography team put into the sword fighting, but mm-hmm. I do find it fast. Like you could sort of tell the way that Jason Momoa is fighting is like a little, just there's something a little unusual about it. Mm-hmm. And I do like this idea of Duncan Idaho is like the greatest swordsman, but like what the greatest swordsman means in this world yeah. is very different from, you know, what just like a great swordsman in our world would look like. Cause in this world he has to have these moves where he's, he's basically just like, cutting guys throats slowly mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah, like yeah. he still has to move quickly to like dodge and like get them you know you know at a moment where they're exposed or whatever but then the actual killing is always kind of these slow movements yeah which i which i did find very interesting to watch yeah yeah um a little bit more like balletic i think yeah just, yeah it it's um <clears throat> it's just a different game you know, um, yeah, that's I feel right. Like that's, He's mastered the the. Uh, there's it's a, it's a game with different rules, which he has mastered. Like I feel like in some ways, um, it's kind of crazy that I'm saying this, but I think I prefer the sword play in Dune and sort of the rules of the game, you know, mm-hmm. better than I might enjoy like a lightsaber fight. Mm heresy adam well it's just sort of like i don't feel like i've ever really understood like how lightsaber fights ought to work right right i know the ones that are most fun to watch are the ones that it's like fast and coordinated like any sort of other action sequence but you're like there's something fundamental about this blade that can cut through anything Right. Right. That I just don't feel like I've ever watched a fight like a lightsaber fight that was like truly innovative and like exposed like how. Right. They're basically like sword fights. They are just basically sword fights. But I've never we've never watched anything. I feel like that exposed like how devastating that weapon could be. Right. Right. Like, for example, like the, the thing, you know. The, the joke that I've heard is like when two people are clashing lightsabers and they're doing that moment where the, they're just touching lightsabers and there's, there's crackling sound. It's mm-hmm. like one of you just needs to slide your lightsaber down and cut the other person's fingers off. Right. Right. right? Yeah. Like why has why does nobody do that? Right. So um, a lot of like friction. <laughs> right. Is right. it hard to slide lightsabers? Unclear. Yeah. Well, did you watch? um uh the anime star wars stuff uh called star wars visions no uh without telling you which one it is there was one particular lightsaber fight in that tv show that was like oh that's interesting you've done something different where in the middle of a lightsaber fight a person like extinguishes their lightsaber and then just like puts the handle up to the other person's chest and then turns Mm. it on Mm. right um, I think didn't didn't Ray do something like that in Last uh, Jedi Last had Jedi. something like yeah. that where um Kylo Ren catches the lightsaber the hand by the handle and then turns it on and it like goes through a person's face. Mm-hmm. Um but it was just sort of like he, the you know in that particular fight the person like turns it off so right. that they can move cuz otherwise they're locked up and they mm. turn it off just so that they can like move it. They poke it in the other person's chest and just do a little tap. Right. And then it and so it's like yeah, that's sort of like a. No, I feel like there's not a lot of that going on in the world right. of Star Wars. And versus like, you know, Dune, it's like, all right, here are the rules, right? 
you got people with shields and you've got and so you have to punk you have to puncture the shield somehow which requires a different level of art and i feel like um i just felt like it was more inventive in like the 10 minutes of sword fighting that's happening in dune versus like the many yeah you know, i don't know many times that amount of lightsaber fights i've seen yeah yeah. At any rate, this isn't like you. Dune versus Star Wars. I like both of these things. But, no, no. Um, well, lightsabers, I, I think Star Wars is also a universe that just has like gotten very sprawling. You know, many different storytellers have come and gone through that universe. So you get and so you get like you get lots of different kind of flavors or spins on certain ideas. Like I in my mind, I don't know if this was actually George Lucas's original intent, but my my take on lightsabers from like the original movies was it's sort of like only a skilled Jedi can even wield one, you know, right. and there's sort of something going on that you almost like can't actually see right. uh, in the text of the film. And it's like not obvious from watching, but it's like it's sort of like you just go on faith like an average person just can't wield one of these. Right. And so there's a lot of like force stuff going on when when two you know, force powers are using lightsabers. Yeah. But then I think that kind of, you know, went away when like, like Poe can just use a lightsaber, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, and, and some of the more inventive stuff that we were just talking about in like the later movies, like the, the last Jedi, for example, it just sort of is changing to me, not changing, but it's just offering like a different perspective on how these weapons work or, Right. what the right way to use them is. Um, yeah. You know, similar similar to putting your ship into warp speed and just using it as a bullet. Right, right. right. To cut through another ship. I like that oh. sort of stuff. I, yeah. I, and, and so I would, that's one of the things I'm keen about for like future Dune stuff. It's just like, okay, I feel like we understand the world a bit. Like we understand rhythmic walking, called mm-hmm. sandworms and shields are difficult to penetrate unless you do it with special way and we know how a hunter seeker works and we know you know it's just sort of like we're, we're starting to understand the rules of the game and yep. i just yep. feel like the movie's already sort of given me some evidence that it's like it's going to you know and villanueva is such an inventive filmmaker it's like i just would expect like to play with the rules Right to like to yeah. like push push the limits of the rules in interesting ways. Indeed. Um, okay, one more thing I want to say because it, it's it's not a specific scene or anything, but um, we already mentioned that this the visuals in this movie are really great. Yeah. I think just a lot of the like mo- there's a lot of great moments mm-hmm. of of just visual uh, beauty, really, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's like a, a couple that come to mind are like there's a ship rising out of the sea yeah. on Caladan. Yeah. That's just there's like nothing th- there's nothing else to say about it that that's just what it is but it just looks outstanding. Right. Um the scene where the reverend mother and her little posse sort of land and they're walking through the rain I mm-hmm. found to be quite sort of uh uh an ominous visual that I thought was super effective. Yeah. Um, there's just a lot of stuff. I think the interiors, like the, the set designer, I don't know how much of it is, is CG, but right. Like the kind of 
just the the palaces and places that that scenes are shot in this film are i just think there's so many and this reminds me of blade runner actually blade runner 2049 in that regard of just there's so many like sumptuous visuals where it's almost like even if the story were bad i would like you know to watch this movie because of just what it's showing me which is so unique and so fully realized more so than the vast majority of films i see so I feel like I that's something that, that Villeneuve as. does, like totally consistently. Totally, right? I think. Star, I I, I want to say, especially with his sort of recent sci-fi movies, like I think Arrival, yeah, totally had some outstanding visuals. Um, Blade Runner and now Dune. His earlier stuff, it I I didn't think of him as much as a visual filmmaker, to be honest. Oh, interesting. Like um, I, you know, I find. Um, I guess Sicario, I think, was quite quite yeah. beautifully shot. I just feel like there's just sort of a like a brutalism element. There's just this like big structures or big vistas or just, yeah. just over feeling over. He likes massive, massive right? epic things. Yeah, because I feel like that's definitely true, even in a movie like Enemy, right? Like um, that's true. Some just of the like sort there's, of there's so surreal many shots, shots. Yeah. of just like. of these giant buildings in a city and of course then like spiders and giant spiders giant just like just enormous things that feel like intimidating and off-putting right yeah i just feel like if you i think you could find all of these things you know in from enemy sicario arrival blade runner dune like all of these movies share i think that element and so like when okay i take it back (laughs) <laughs> so when we um but i th- but i think your point is totally well made it's like so when you think of denis villeneuve has a movie coming out right like part of like what you know in the back of your mind i think nolan does this too maybe in a slightly different way but like in the back of your mind you're like it's gonna be just like there's gonna be this something in physically enormous mm-hmm. that like feels that that creates an effect that you know other filmmakers don't attempt you know yeah 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 and if they do sometimes they just aren't able to pull it off as well yeah it's like you can tell when something that's supposed to be big is just like pixels yeah you know and in those situations it's just not as moving right or moving at all um and i think like we we could you know i would say the marvel movies most typically fall under this category it's like whenever Mm. they're trying to depict something giant it has a way of just feeling like a drawing or like a cartoon, mm. right? Mm. Um, versus like in Dune, I really do feel like a helicopter is landing in a giant, or an ornithopter, excuse me, is landing in a giant palace, you know? Yeah. Or when like yeah. Atreides wakes up in his palace and the rooms just feel cavernous. Um, yeah. Oh, I mean, one of my favorite moments in the film, just a tiny, mo- you talked about great moments in the movie. <laughs> Like one little moment that I just loved was when Harkonnen, after the Bene Gesserit leave the Harkonnen sort of throne room, and Harkonnen starts to float above his mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. conciliary or whatever, and he's like, you know, my my desert, my dune, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just the image of him floating ten feet up in the air or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. And the ceiling has plenty more to go, right? Like, um, 
just you know just the height of things it just everything just feels so big the fact that harkin is able to float he's able to survive the assassination attempt by just like floating up to this like lofty place in the ceiling it just sort of like it just i feel like the size of things is just constantly emphasized in the film it's true it's true for such a seemingly austere kind of universe, they they still build giant, grandiose structures. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, uh, why don't we do fix the movie though? Is there any any little bones you have to pick with this film? Well, I mean, the elephant in the room is that the story's not over at the end of the movie, right? Sure. Um, now I knew that going in, I knew that it was just like a part of a story. And so like um, the same way that I would ostensibly feel if I like read half of the book of Dune or whatever, and mm-hmm. then like put it down, I'd be like that, you know, I'd be like, that was good. But there's sort of this expectation like, but I will finish it. I will now pick it. Yeah. I will pick it up tomorrow and finish it or whatever. Um, and so the fact that this movie's like you did doesn't have that, right? You have it's like you will finish it two years from now, right? Yeah, just feels like oh what like. <laughs> uh, but you I, it, because I knew that that was going to be the case, just sort of like walked in knowing that that would be my experience. Uh, I was very forgiving of it, but you know if mm. I could magically wave a wand and fix the movie it'd be like rest of story please right yeah yeah i you know i uh i sort of felt like where this movie chose to end was a little odd sort of like it's total i'm totally get having splitting it into two halves because it's a very long story but it almost felt like you know Maybe they could have ended. I, in fact, I thought they were going to end before meeting the Fremen or like, you know. Yeah. Um, maybe, honestly, that first encounter Paul and Lady Jessica have with a worm in the, in the desert. Yeah. And narrowly surviving by kind of like reaching the rock. Yeah. I, the, I, I That almost felt like I don't even think that like moment is in the book. Because it's just, there's like not even a narrative to it. It's just like a a visual thing that you see. Right. And so to me, it felt like, you know, it kind of felt like that, uh, that like sort of chief orc in the fellowship of the ring that they kill at the end of the movie, which is like not even from the book, but they just wanted to give it a little thing to end end the first third. Um, I thought it would end there. And then, and then when it kept going, I was sort of like, oh, okay, there's a little more, but then what what is revealed before the movie actually ends feels like not so much the end of a movie. It feels like it could have been the beginning of the next movie, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, now all that said, a thought I have the, the, the actual book Dune is split into two books. Like you open the book and it's like book one, mm-hmm. you know, and then about halfway through it's like book two. And I think that I'd have to double check. Um, mm-hmm. They might have just done book one. Like, I think that actually might be how book one ends. Oh, I see. Is he defeats Jameis. If that's the case, then I sort of have to just forgive the movie because it's like you're just doing what the book did. 
Right, right. <laughs> but it's like the difference is, of course, in the book, it's like then you turn the page and you're on to the next part of the story. So it's right. like a little well, yeah, different that, feel. Yeah. And that's the point that I was from sort of now making. you must wait two years. Right. Um, but anyway, I think it's the sort of thing that after the second movie is out, you know, two years from now when both movies exist. Yeah. It'll probably feel totally fine that the first right. one ends when it does, because it's like, that's when the book ended. Book yeah. one. I mean, yeah, I mean, the same way we talk about Lord of the Rings, right? We don't really talk about the fellowship of the ring yeah. as, you know, disappointing or something no. because like, yeah. oh yeah, not, you know, it sort of ends in a weird spot. It's sort of like, yeah, but then you just watch the two towers and then you watch return of the King and that's how it yeah. goes. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I, yeah, it does feel very plausible that like in, in five years time or whatever, when, because I've heard Villeneuve wants to make three of these. Right. Uh, that'd be so, great so that'd be great like, i could easily envision a world where we're like once the dune trio is complete and it's viewed as like you know one of the great accomplishments in filmmaking mm-hmm. right uh it will be like oh yeah anybody who like nitpicked where the first one ended <laughs> right. is yeah. like who cares yeah, it'll uh, be like when the first one came out people were really annoyed about the ending you know mm-hmm. how dumb they were <laughs> right? right right because we all now know this is the one of the greatest film trilogies of all time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I think what he said he was hoping to do is a trilogy where the first two films are the first book Mm. and the third film is the second book. Okay. Which would just be sort of unusual, put it that way. Yeah. There are like four more books. Right. But (laughs) that's sort of how, that's sort of how he sees it. I mean, I think that was one of the things that um, when we talked about expectations, uh, I had heard like in the lead up, to, and again, like I, we, you know, we typically try not to do a bunch of reading beforehand, but I remember before I saw it, like here over overhearing or over over reading, wasn't consciously uh-huh. seeking it out. At any rate, that Villeneuve like read Dune when he was a teenager, and it mm-hmm. was really important to him, and yeah. he's like. You know, it stayed with him for all these years. It's like and been his dream project. Right. Yeah. And it's like he's been thinking about this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so uh, in that regard, like knowing that this story like this, this person has a vision for how to tell this story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They've got a very firm idea of what they think the right way to do it is. And so um, and I remember hearing an interview with him and he was like, I've, you know, there have been lots of stories that I've loved or scripts that I've read that I thought were great, but I ended up not doing them because I didn't have a point of view on how to mm-hmm. do it. Right. Mm-hmm. I was like, I was like, this is great. I don't know how to do it. Right. Um, right. He's like, but I know how to, but I feel like I knew how to do this. And I feel like I had a, a point of view on how, how it ought to unfold. So, um, well, so I it's like, it did great. Yeah. And so it's like, I feel like you can feel that. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, and so in some ways, like uh, if it was, a, it's funny, this, this sounds ridiculous, but like if it was a director that I trusted less, <laughs> right. Or, um, or if it was like not certain that uh, Villeneuve was going to make the second movie. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause that happens all the time that a, one director will make the first movie in a first Oh yeah. Movie. God. Oh, that would be so sad if a diff, if they got, 
you know. I mean, that happened uh, with Sicario too. You know what I mean? Like, not that Villeneuve was ever going to be the guy to make Sicario two, but I just remember thinking, like, they're like, we're making Sicario when when you just hear the words Sicario two, right? I was before you know anything about the movie, it's like, yes, (laughs) give it to me, right? And then you're like, it's made by a different guy, and it's like, oh, that's not. That's probably yeah. not what I wanted. But to, right? to me, this would be this would be way more frustrating than that because Sicario was just like a standalone movie, right? And when they d- announced Sicario two, you're like, oh, another one? Oh, I. It's not like I was really expecting another one. Whereas with Dune, it's like there's another half to this story, you know? Right. Right. Um. Yeah, it would just be such a bummer if it was like you know second one by Danny Boyle. Right. <laughs> not to pick on Danny Boyle I'd just be yeah, Danny Boyle, I'd be very very bummed if it weren't Villeneuve totally anyway it, and and so like um when you think about you know going back to Star Wars it's like I trust Villeneuve and I trust the fact that when he makes the next movie like he's got a point of view on how it's all going to hang together compare it to yep. a movie like uh The Force Awakens right and you know, like we've sort of ragged on J.J. Abrams on this podcast before. And yeah. It's sort of like I don't have a lot of confidence in uh, his plane landing ability. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so uh, it's just one of those things where it's like if you if if um, if J.J. Abrams had made this movie, which is insane. But like if he had made this movie and it was exactly the same movie and it's like and he's going to make the sequel, I'd be like more nervous. You know what I mean? I'd be like, uh, sure, sure, sure. What if, but like, you know, not there's not the track record there of finishing things in a satisfying way. Right. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it's Villeneuve, it's sort of like, OK, I'm just, I'll just wait patiently while you do your work. That's right. Well, OK, so we haven't really had a lot to say as far as fix the movie, I will say the the closest thing I I have to a gripe probably for this film is something I actually already alluded to, which is the, I know it's a long movie. I know there was probably a lot that kind of had to be edited for, you know, just to kind of control the length and make it not three and a half hours. Mm -hmm. But I, I do miss having read the book. I think, um, a lot more time is given, a lot more story time is given to especially the development of Duke Leto Mm -hmm. as he's, he really like, um, he spends a lot of time. The the book spends a lot of time kind of conveying both how competent he is, Mm -hmm. um, but how he's also like a good leader who cares about people He's right. not trying to oppress anyone. He's trying to like win hearts and minds. Yeah. And I think you come to really respect him and really understand how his men would be so loyal to him, you know, right. and how the Fremen would start to actually kind of cautiously trust him. Yeah. Um, and the movie just doesn't really have time to do any of that. Right. So you sort of, you just get to see a few scenes with Oscar Isaac being kind of, you know, amiable enough mm-hmm. and you're sort of like i think he's a good guy <laughs> right and and so it's it is sad you know when he dies but like i think um 
you know, it, it's it's a lot more to me. It, it could have been a lot if if the movie had given, let's call it, ten minutes more. You know, total, which you can do a lot in ten minutes actually in a movie, right. um, with just kind of doing a little bit more investment in the Atreides time, like the peacetime on Arrakis, right? After the Harkonnens have left, but before the big the big invasion. I think it would have been a, a little bit stronger for it. I think, you know, the feeling of loss of like when Ned Stark dies at the end of season one of Game of Thrones, it is devastating, right? Right. right. Because because for exactly those reasons, you've come to really respect him, right? Um, and view him as a really good leader and a good father and all those things, and you're just like, no, I feel like you don't quite have that with the Duke yeah. in this movie, yeah. So that's the main thing that I would have liked to see fleshed out more. Yeah, I think that's a great, great point. I think I agree. Um, I have a question. Uh, In the book, is the emperor meant to be like extremely uh, enigmatic? Like you have no exposure to him as a character? For the first half, absolutely. Okay, okay. Yeah, they talk about him, but well, something that's really I I think is really fascinating about the book. And I don't know any way you could translate this into a movie. So they were right to leave it out um, uh, is that every chapter in the book is um, at the start of every chapter. There's a little excerpt Mm -hmm. of some like historical document Mm -hmm. that are all written by Princess Irulan or I don't know how you pronounce her name, but she's the daughter of the emperor. Okay. And in some of those, she will talk about like how my father felt about Duke Leto Atreides or things like that. Uh huh. So like none of the characters in the main story really have any exposure to him. Yeah. Um, but those, those little, those little snippets at the start of each chapter give you a bit, give you a bit more to go by yeah but not much he still he still is absolutely like a distant figure that you don't really know anything about interesting yeah because that was that was the thing that struck me as like not as persuasive like this family has been sent to a planet to die basically be be to be betrayed and ultimately to die by the emperor and it's ostensibly because at least the way the movie portrays it, that Duke Leto is um, sort of too well liked. Right. And represents some sort of nascent threat. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the emperor sort of takes, makes this move to basically eliminate a rival and, uh, which makes sense, like, but it was sort of like it's less satisfying that it's this unseen character who we have yeah. no understanding of, and it's just sort of like this malevolent force just making stuff happen, which yeah. like would be fine. Um, you know, I feel like there's plenty of movies that reveal the baddie like late, right? Right. Right. Um, but to not reveal him at all. Mm. Uh, it's just sort of like it's. It just makes the whole set of losses that Atreides family faces just like a little 
less um it just makes them resound a little bit less because you don't yeah. totally understand the motivation or rationale of the person who's doing it it just feels like the story of job almost you know what i mean it feels just like bad yeah. stuff happening <laughs> right for who no, knows why for yeah. no reason yeah. you know well we will definitely meet the emperor in the second movie okay there's no avoiding that um I think, yeah, I think, I think, um, we are, we are identifying something that probably would have been nice to include in the movie somehow. Like I said, you can't include snippets of historical documents from, by the princess. Like, I just right. don't see any way you do that cinematically. Right. Um, but what those captured, like, for example, she, from those excerpts, you do gather some background context, which I do think deepens some of the events in the movie in the way that you're talking about. For example, like you learn that the emperor kind of liked Duke Leto, like mm -hmm. he, 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 he liked him and kind of considers him a good man. Mm -hmm. And that sort of like there was an element of sadness in his, you know, in, in his decision uh, to do oh, what he ended up doing. And, yeah. and, the, and he actually feels quite a bit of contempt for the Baron Harkonnen. Like he doesn't like the Harkonnens. Oh, so, interesting. so what you sort of know, you know, even though you don't, there's no scenes with the emperor in the first book, you have a, you have an understanding of like, he, he just as a person prefers the Atreides, mm -hmm. but they are a threat. Mm -hmm. And he really doesn't like the Harkonnens. Like nobody likes the Harkonnens, you know, right. like they're just despicable people. Right. But they're a tool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder if in the movie, if they could have done something like the, the first thing that comes to mind for me of a way you could have maybe tried to get some of that context in there would have been um, like in one of the scenes between Paul and the Duke. If mm -hmm. Paul had been like, tell me about the emperor, you know, Right. And if and if Duke, the Duke had just been like, you know, he and I were friends many years ago and, you know, I haven't spoken to him in a long time. But like, it, it, you know, right. just something to give a sense of they they know each other. There is at least a mild like fondness between them. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Might have so been might have so been many nice. characters who know stuff in mm -hmm. this movie like Harkonnen and um the character played by Stephen McKenley Henderson Thufer Howitt I mm -hmm. guess mm -hmm. um Gurney uh the Harkonnens um the Reverend Mother uh DeVries like all of these people like know stuff mm -hmm. right yeah. and it and it they you know, know what I mean and yeah. and so it's just sort of like somebody could have said something now the closest i think we get is the bit where um the reverend mother meets with the baron and they're sort of negotiating she's negotiating for the lives of of jessica and paul right mm -hmm. but it would have been yeah that was an opportunity to sort of like talk about that right because harkonnen yeah. could have even said like i thought the emperor and duke leto were friends like why right. is this happening Right. right, right. So at any rate, yeah. just yeah, yeah, I just felt like it was a little bit opaque, a little bit unsatisfyingly opaque. 
Well, this is one of those, I mean, sometimes we identify things that aren't quite super satisfying about the movie, but we don't exactly have a nice, clean way to fix it. Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, it's this like, feels like one of those. more exposition, right, yeah. I mean, I will say on balance, I would have to say, I kind of like, um, you know, if they had tried to cast, if they had tried to get like a scene with the emperor in this movie, mm-hmm. they would have need to f- find like a good, you know, actor to play that character. Right. And it would have been, you know, it reminds me, of, <laughs> reminds me of how they got Ed Norton to play that guy in Alita. Do you remember that? <laughs> Yeah. At the end of Alita Battle yes. Angel, we yes. see like Ed Norton's face for, you know, three seconds. And yeah. you're like, oh, I guess they got him to shoot that one moment uh-huh. in case they did a sequel. And then he'd be in that. But it's like, they're not gonna. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Ed Norton just showed up one day to shoot one shot, basically. Yeah. It would have been it would have been like that. So I think on balance, I'm, you know, overall, all things being considered, I probably think it's it's better that they just didn't bother casting the emperor yet. Yeah. And now they can just get, you know, somebody good. I wonder who they'll get. There's actually a, a, a decent number of characters who will have to be introduced, I think, in the second half, which is kind of fun to look forward to. Yeah, that is like a peculiar aspect of this movie is like, uh, one, I'm just sort of going through the cast list, like one, two, three, four, five, six of the top, whatever, 12 or 17 or 12 or excuse me, 12 or 14 characters are gone. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and so like mm-hmm. the characters that you sort of get to know in this movie, like nearly half of them won't be in the second movie or they'll only be there yeah. in flashback or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's a whole other pool of characters they're going to have to introduce that, you know, because I'm not familiar with the book. I don't know who they are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to it. Um, okay. that I don't really have any other fix the movies. Um, you got anything else? Nah. Any, any farthing thoughts? Let's discuss. Uh, let's decide then. Beam it up or not. I'm okay. going to count to three and you say and and say yes or no. Okay. All right. Ready? Yes. One, two, three. Yes. Yes. Nice. Let's beam it. Dune part one. By the time it reaches the astronaut, maybe uh, part two will be out. In yeah. Theaters. Yeah. Our dial up <laughs> speeds in the deep, deep reaches of space. How crazy would that be? It takes two years to... <laughs> To beam the movie, well, right. I guess and then it's like the be, conne- and if the connection be. drops at any point, he has to start Gotta over. Got to start over. That's yeah. right. Um. All right. Well, very exciting. I th- this is the first movie I can think of in a while that we no. Actually, I guess we we beamed up Suicide Squad, didn't we? The Suicide Squad. The Suicide Squad. I think. We and did. then and yeah, and then I think uh, you beamed up Green Knight, and I beamed up Nobody. Yeah, but right. but but we've we've not been like aligned on that since the Suicide Squad. Yeah, I think there've been a handful of movies that I've beamed up or you've beamed up, but not yeah. both of us. Yeah. All right, Dune. So so psyched for the next one. There it goes. We gotta wait. We gotta wait two more. See years, you in two but... years, astronaut. That's right. Okay. Well, 
that's the episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Adam. I'm Dan. Good night. Bye.